Welcome back to Let's Talk About Women, a podcast where we talk about women's mental health across the reproductive lifespan. My name is Franziska Weinmar and I'm a doctoral candidate of the International Research Training Group 2804. And with this podcast, we want to share insights from interdisciplinary research on women's mental health. Today, for the first time, I'm not in the same room as my interview guest who joined us now from Toronto. Welcome, Dr. Lisa Galea. I'm so glad we, we get together in this special setting and even with the time difference. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Lisa, I thought a lot about how I can introduce you without falling short of all of your indispensable work and contribution, but here's my best attempt. You have been a professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver in Canada, and you're currently a senior scientist at the Center of Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto and leading the Women's Health Research Cluster. In your research, you're mainly investigating how sex hormones influence brain health and disease in both females and males with the aim to improve brain health and um, for women and men. On top, you're serving on different advisory and editorial boards where you never stop asking the most intriguing and essential questions. In one of your profiles, I came across probably the best summary sentence. You are a tireless advocate for women's mental health research and for sex and gender-based analyses to improve mental health for all. I'm very happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> of course. So, Lisa, in your research on brain health and disease, you have been and are working with animal models. And before we dive deeper, let me first ask you, what can and does research in animal models reveal about humans? Well, that's a very um, big question. Um, and... I would say that it reveals a lot. I mean, most of the medical knowledge that we have to date has been, you know, all of the therapeutics that we have, um, maybe not talk therapy, uh, but um, all of the sort of dr drug interventions that we have, even um, non-drug related like exercise interventions, all of that is from uh, information we've gleaned from animal models they can tell us a lot. Um, uh, obviously, it's always important to do it in conjunction with human studies so that we know what translates and what doesn't translate mm -hmm. from, say, um, a mouse or a fruit fly to a human, even worms. Uh, I remember when I first started my career at UBC, there was a researcher that does work in C. elegans, which are these microscopic worms. Mm -hmm. And I do remember being skeptical at the beginning, thinking like, what can the, what can worms tell us anything about human behavior? But in fact, um, they do, they have, they learn, um, they have like some sort of, uh, simple learning and it can tell us a lot about what might go wrong with simple learning, even in how, how well a worm learns to not go towards, you know, a certain noxious stimuli, for example. Um, what I mean by noxious stimuli is like, I don't know, ground movement or something like that, you know, um, or a chemical or something. So I, I think all of the, I would just say that all of our, you know, um, uh, medical interventions have been due to animal research. And so uh, we can learn a lot by studying, even just studying comparative systems. So, um, sorry, I know I'm going on, but I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, There is a cardiologist, somebody that studies the heart and related circulatory systems, 
who <clears throat> was really interested in, 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 in all of the stresses that happen on the cardiac system, on the heart system during pregnancy. Because during pregnancy, we have a lot of different body systems that are, um, shall we say, taxed <laughs> um, because they're trying to keep the fetus alive. Right, so our our heart system actually um, uh, increases by fifty uh, percent. That's how much more work our heart has to do mm. while we're pregnant, and our lung system actually decreases by fifty percent. So it's like this, you know, our immune system is perturbated. Everything's perturbated during pregnancy. Anyway, she's a cardiologist. It turns out that if you have certain pregnancy disorders like pregestational diabetes or preeclampsia, that can really influence heart health, not just during pregnancy, but also many, many years later. And this has sort of been um, a sort of a perplexing um, uh, situation or case. And she she was in Africa, I think on a safari or something, she saw these giraffes, and they were pregnant, and they were running just as much as all the other giraffes, because if they can't <laughs> run, right, they're going to get eaten by the lion. So, course, you know, yeah. evolution must have done something to allow those giraffes to be pregnant, and to have their heart working just as it would normally. So um, understanding, understanding the cardiovascular system, even in a giraffe, can help humans, help us understand what might work in humans to improve their heart health. So, and there's, there's many other um, examples too. I think elephants don't typically get cancer that much. Yeah. And so why is that? And, yeah. you know, is there something that they eat, for example, that might help human health as well? I see. So probably it's also that we're not talking only about um, rodents, mice or rats, but also like, um, animals, the whole animal kingdom from a worm to a mammal or something else can might tell us something about how it works differently or the same or what could yeah help a human or how it might work in humans. I see. Okay. But then I would like to transition also to to um, to the state of the art of today. Um, I mean, you tapped in that already a little bit, but maybe we can make it more specific. What would you say are um, a current achievement of animal research for human? Or if I rephrase differently, what is an indispensable achievement for us today that would not have been possible without research in animals? I mean, there's so many to pick from polio, vaccines, um COVID-19 vaccines, I'm sad sad that that's even controversial to mention, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, we we couldn't, we wouldn't have been here. Um, Or even understanding how the BRCA gene might um, increase your risk for breast cancer or how the APOE4 gene um, increases your risk tremendously Mm -hmm. for um, Alzheimer's disease, particularly in women. Um, we wouldn't be able to do any of that, even understand that without understanding, um, uh, without having, having done some work in animals. Um, uh, and that's just simply because the technology didn't exist. And it was some people, uh, I'm trying to remember their names, but it doesn't, I think, uh, <laughs> one of them is Brock. Anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter. They studied, um, microbes in, uh, which are just tiny microscopic creatures in the hot springs of uh, Yellowstone National Park. And because they did, they came up with the technology that we can look at the genome. So if they hadn't done that. Yeah. And and I think just one other little thing I'll just mention is that it's really important. And I don't, I don't know that 
the public really under, necessarily understands this, but it's really important for scientists to have sort of an open um, uh, uh, ability to do research and research on a wide variety of topics because exactly. we don't know, this is one of my favorite things to say, we don't know where the next great discovery is going to come from. Mm-hmm. But we do know that in the past and in the future, it's going to come from an unlikely source like studying microbes in Yellowstone National Park mm-hmm. so that we can understand the human genome. And so that's why it's so important to maintain a level of funding for uh, research and yeah. evidence-based research. For sure. So everything about how do I put it? I mean, it's also often say like that the research in animal models is preclinical research. So basically what you also been, um, been telling about is that all research that has been done in, in microbes and animals, um, has led us to where we are now with our techniques. But also if we tap then into disease about how we medicate, right? And how, how, what kind of a therapies we have. It has to be or is being developed in, in, in animal models, whatever kind of an animal model we have. And there probably are different layers and steps. Um, it's also, that would maybe be like a question is, is it also because, um, we have the ability to have causational models in animals that we can only have correlational in, in humans. So I can induce something in an animal to, to really see a causation here. Whereas in humans, it's often more of, yeah, there's a correlation or there's like it, but it's really hard to, to see the definite causation for, for therapies, for example. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So. Um, it's really important in preclinical work to have really good models for the disease that you're interested in. Um, it's really important to understand who is getting the disease and when they're getting di- the disease. And then that way you can bring it back into your model system to really interrogate what might be causative, um, in, in, you know, the risk or, um, or in the therapeutic potential of a certain drug. So for example, I already use the APOE4 allele. If, if you have one or two of these alleles and, um, Chris Helmsworth made this kind of popular. He's the actor that played Thor <laughs> for those people that don't know that. And he was doing another TV series where they've discovered he has two of these alleles for APOE4, which increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease pretty dramatically. It's about 15 times, 12 to 15 times greater. Um, if you have these two, that doesn't mean for sure you're going to get it. Now we can do population-based studies in humans where you can look at people who have this ApoE4 allele and see that, yes, they have this greater risk, but you can't, we can't control everything that a human does, right? Like how much education they have, yes. what they're eating, um, how much even daylight they get, like all of those things might matter. Um, and so this is what's I guess, really important about one of the things that's really important about animal models. So we can tightly control that. We can exactly. even control genetic ba- background, right? So we can, we can say, okay, at the certain age, um, with these certain experiences already, what happens when we introduce this gene or what happens when we introduce this drug? And does that alleviate, um, any of the, um, s- symptoms or end of uh, phenotypes? Um, of a certain disease. And so what I mean by phenotypes is just um, uh, the presentation of a disease, 
how it looks, how it manifests in a person. Okay. So um, if I would, would um, rephrase or like um, so maybe put it in my own words, um, for example, that based on the research that we were able to do in animal models, things like an achievement that we got out of that is that we can understand the association of these gene variants, these alleles, the APO4 gene that has that shows an increased risk um, or association to Alzheimer's disease later on, that we can actually see in these animals. We can manipulate these gene variants and see what kind of symptoms or phenotypes will lead out of that. Yeah, and but also um, what are the possible mechanisms behind that increased risk? Mm -hmm. So I was actually just at the Alzheimer's, a very large Alzheimer's um, conference in Amsterdam, and there are some studies where they are in mice taking that APOE4 allele and changing it to um, the protective allele, which is APOE2 or 3, um, just in certain cells to see is it, is it for example, this microglia that's causing this particular increased risk. And so we can really drill down into what cell-specific pathways might be the most effective. I mean, is it is it a cell coming from the brain? Is it a cell coming from, and this might sound funny, but is it a cell coming from, or is it a chemical signal coming from the gut? For sure. But it turns out that there are a number of signals, right, from gut to brain. Um, and I think for your audience, somebody described this to me and I thought, oh, that's a really good analogy, which is that, because when I first heard about like the gut microbiome and how it might influence our behavior, I was kind <laughs> of you know, like, come on. But then if you think about when you're anxious and then what that does to your tummy and maybe you need to go to the toilet a little bit more, <laughs> that's a very good example of how your gut can drive your behavior. And also reverse, right? So um, there's 100%. like this connection going on. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then as you also say, like manipulating, it sounds like like really going into specific cells and changing specific genes. That's mm -hmm. only something that we can do in animal models, right? I could not go to my participants and say like, oh, well, I'm going to just manipulate and yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving you sort of say, or like I'm manipulating your genes so that you get the risk, more risky variant of this um, gene that might lead or be associated to Alzheimer's I cannot do that yeah. so and, and I think about it in the reverse even though I'm not a genetic researcher but you know you could think of something like a Huntington's disease which has a very strong genetic component or cystic fibrosis and so being able to manipulate these genes or the cells that might be contributing to the disease is really important even in humans so now we know how to do it in rodents and other animals Uh, and we know that we can use those same processes in humans to, to potentially reverse those disorders. And that, that's the future, right? Being able to take what we've learned in these animal models and apply it to humans. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's probably the goal of it all. That's true. Um, but now I want to make the previous question a little bit more specifically. Um, and that is, what are the achievements of animal research for women today? Also considering women's mental health. Yeah, so I would say this one's a little more difficult to answer. And um, I have one really good example. But uh, before I get there, I just want to say that, unfortunately, because of, I don't know, you know, what type of biases, but we all have them. Um, and unfortunately, most of the medical knowledge that we have in humans and in animal models has come from males, studying um, the male physiology. 
And so if you, we've actually looked at the literature and other people have as well. And they found that it's only 3% of studies that are looking at specifically at females. Um, and about 5% that look to even see if there might be a difference between males and females. Uh, another study looked, um, and this was only in humans, but they looked at of the studies that looked to see, is there a difference between men and women or males and females? Um, 72% of them found a difference. So even though very few studies look at it, there is often a difference between the two. And, and so to really get an idea of of women's health, we need to study women's health questions. And there are very few of us that are studying it. Yeah, um, that's so, it's, it's really, it's a shocking number, honestly. It's a shocking it's, number. It's, again, it's shocking let, number, let me, let me repeat. It's only yeah. 3% of the studies that have only looked at female subjects. That is female animals, female human, human. being, um, compared to, I don't know how, how many percentage of the men, males have been studied or like common studies, but. Um, 27%. If it's, if it's only males, mm -hmm. it's 27%. Mm -hmm. If you are talking about those studies that looked at both, it's about 70%. But most of those studies don't actually look to see if there's a difference yeah. or they might have an unequal number. So some of the worst studies I saw where, you know, they might have you know, 20 males and two females, you're not going to learn very much. Oh, a, a very good example of this. And then I'll tell you uh, one good, yeah. very good example of this is, and this isn't in animal models, this is in humans, but uh, it was a drug that was uh, developed for female sexual libido. So um, I, I forgot what it's called. It's not adme, but something like that. Um, and uh, it's, it's a shame. I can't remember the name of this. Anyway, it's, it, it's like Viagra, but it increases. Yeah. You might know what it is. And um, so the company was told by the FDA, Federal Drug uh, um, Agency in the U.S., oh, we want to make sure of the interactions with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Because if women are taking this to increase their libido, increase their sexual motivation, um, you know, they might be drinking. So let's make sure that it's safe while we're drinking. So they studied 20 people. So at what percentage or how many do you think were women of the 20 well, it should be uh, a medication for women, right? But mm -hmm. ah, I see. Okay. Well, I would have hoped that it would be a hundred percent women, but uh, yes, it is not. It was uh, two, two out of the twenty. No, but it was a medication for women. Yes, exactly. Like, why do we care how it affects men if they're not taking the drug? It makes no sense. <laughs> no, it so doesn't. This is how bad the systemic bias is, um, just in you know, even clinical testing. It's that's just, crazy. It's that's crazy. really insane. Also, so, because because I, I, I might just also stress it again once more, because I, I read the paper, of course, where you came up and, and analyzed and came to the statistics of only 3% female only studies. It hasn't changed since the past 10 years, right? So you looked at studies from 2009, and 2019, so 10 years in between, and at least for the female-only sample, the numbers didn't change. And that is something that is so frustrating. It, it's very frustrating. It does seem, I, yeah. Yeah, we, and I also just did the very, very, very quick analysis where I looked just from all time. <laughs> and uh, I was looking specifically at female-specific experiences, you know, like menopause or pregnancy or um, menstruation. And I, it was under 2% of all, it was just neuroscience. So this is studying the brain. So I, I, I did just, just limit it to that. Um, so it's, it is, it's, fr it's frustrating. Um, 
obviously in certain disorders or diseases like breast cancer, um, even though males can get breast cancer, they're the understudied sex. Um, mm-hmm. but in others, uh, uh you know, in, uh, in female breast cancer, we do have quite a bit of knowledge about that. So there are certain disorders where you do see, um, uptake, uh, um, of, of, of females, but I'll say in terms of mental health, probably the best example I could think of very quickly mm-hmm. is, uh, brixanolone. Um, so this was a synthetic allopregnanolone. Allopregnanolone is a metabolite progesterone. Um, and, a, and an animal researcher uh, named Jamie McGuire had developed an mo- animal model of postpartum depression. And she noticed, and um, just for your listeners, uh, postpartum, the time of greatest risk to develop depression, first time depression in a female's life is actually in the postpartum. That's the, that's the sort of, largest time for first time depression. And so um, uh, there are a few models now, animal models of postpartum depression. When I first started 25 years ago, there were zero. So that was kind of shocking. And we developed a couple in the lab and then other people have taken it up, which is fantastic. Anyway, Jamie uh, took one up and she noticed that progesterone really decreased in the postpartum and uh, metabolite allopregnanolone really decreased and that that might be contributing to some of the um, sort of more depressive, uh, like, mm-hmm. uh, manifestations. Mm-hmm. And so a drug company, Sage Therapeutics, um, decided to create a synthetic molecule called Bruxanolone. There's some other analogs as well now. And they, for the very first time ever, and I think it was a couple of years ago now, the FDA approved a, a specific drug, and this is Bruxanolone, for treating postpartum depression. So here's a really great you know, when you pay attention to sex and gender or t- really pay attention to female specific experiences like, hey, the postpartum is this time a really great risk. What's going on there? You can make huge headways. Yeah. Huge headways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that is like now that we've turned a little bit of a detour here, I would say. <laughs> uh, but we came back to answering probably the question that one of the um, achievements, specific achievements for women um, using also animal models is this animal model in postpartum depression. Um, that is not something that, again, we can induce just like that in a study in humans, but it was able to be studied then in animal models. And out of that, we have now a potential first therapeutic for postpartum depression, which is really, really great because as far as I also remember the numbers here, I think postpartum depression is has quite a high prevalence um as well i think numbers are up to 10 or 20 percent i might fact check yeah. that again but it's, it's quite it's high. usually around like depending on the country and yeah. everything is somewhere around you know you can go as low as eight to as high as 20 yeah. but, but but maybe i just say part of this is also maybe i don't know exactly what's going on here but the um the way we classify disorders I, i'm not positive that people are very um are really thinking about women um when they're doing this so uh for example in the i think in north america we use the dsm5 i think in europe you use something else so and i think they're different they're different mm-hmm. criteria to, yeah. to have postpartum depression but actually um they don't distinguish between depression during pregnancy versus depression in the postpartum at least in north america and so um it's really hard to even find the studies that distinguish between and and the reason why that's so important is because the um physiological your your body's very different 
and your risk is very different um, compared to when you're pregnant versus in the postpartum. And this is for first time, first time uh, depression. So it's much higher. I think the odds ratio, um, which you can interpret for them, is something like seven in the um, like in ten, the ten to nineteen days after for first time mm-hmm. any psychiatric symptoms. So that's that's huge. That's seven times greater the risk yeah. um, in the immediate postpartum. Yeah. And now I think that's a very beautiful transition to what we've also been tapping into once and there and now also transitioning after the question, because we've established now that there are certain female specific mechanisms, right? So uh, mechanisms that are very specific to females. Um, and I mean, we've kind of also talked about why it's so important for us to study female-specific mechanisms. Um, but maybe you can give us an example of... Um, of a very specific female-specific mechanism that is important for brain health or brain disease and which you investigate using animal models, maybe also at the moment in your in your group or in your research projects that you... Um, yeah, I was going to give you another example, but if you want from my group... Um, <laughs> Can also be a different one. It doesn't yeah. have to be, but... Um, well, no, I, I was just going to mention... I'll, I'll talk about my research in a second, but I will just also mention something... Something also shocking, which is I know, you know, we've already talked about the fact that there's so few female specific studies, but the most prescribed drug in the world, any idea what it is? I'll give you a hint. It's female specific. It's a female specific drug. Mm-hmm. Oh. Most people I think will think of like, um, Lipitor, like something to reduce, uh, cl- cholesterol and. Yeah. No, pressure, but, I'm not. Oh, but of course, oral contraceptives. Yes, yeah. exactly. I'll, okay. I'll just say hormonal. So, it <laughs> like yeah, I was just thinking because we well. never, we never really think of oral contraceptives as medication, right? But it is. But that was like, yeah, mm-hmm. it is. So, yeah, hormonal. Three hundred, three hundred million people worldwide take hormonal, some form of hormonal contraceptives. Yeah, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been on the market for sixty years. And yet, I think it's 0.15% of studies have looked to see how hormonal contraceptives affect the brain. It's a, it's a really tiny, tiny percentage. So we know a lot about, you know, fertility and we know a lot about blood clots and things like that, but we know very little about it, the brain. And so, um, that's why it's so important to study these kinds of, um, uh, female specific experiences. Um, so the, I mean, I would say that we do all of, all of them except for the hormonal contraceptives. Um, but probably the one, uh, like we, we've looked at how, um, hormone status. So sort of a model of menopause, a surgical menopause and how estrogens influence the brain mm. in terms of memory and neuroplasticity. Uh, but we also, I would say probably our more later research, um, that we have been doing is how pregnancy itself affects the brain in the short term. So I, I think I mentioned already that we've done, done some animal models postpartum depression, uh, but also in the long term. So how how does that influence, for example, risk for Alzheimer's disease or brain mm-hmm. aging specifically? Yes. Um, we've actually also found and published on this, and this is in rats. So we're trying to do the same study right now in humans. It's really hard to do it. I can tell you why later if you want. But um, in rats, what we found is that in middle age, if we gave them estrogens, like a hormone therapy, right? It's you know, there's some controversy about whether or not it's um, uh, leads to a risk or not for Alzheimer's disease. And what we found is that we saw different effects on on brain health depending on on whether or not a rat had um, 
had preg- pregnancy or not. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in this in a, this particular formulation that we used, um, which was a very famous one and the infamous one, Premarin, um, oh, uh, it actually ha- sort of helped brain health in an animal that had never been pregnant, but actually made brains of previously pregnant female rats much worse in middle age. So, so suggesting that like your history, whether or not you've been pregnant might indicate what kind of hormone therapy would be better for you later on. And to, and to me, that's like the heart of something that's um, very popular in the U S and Canada. um, And I think Europe, which is precision medicine. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think a lot of people think of precision medicine as genotype as like what your genes are and your specific alleles, but it's, it's got to be much more than that. It has to be. It has to include your sex and gender. It has to include um, your experiences, like whether or not you've been pregnant, whether or not you've taken hormonal contraceptives, what kind of menopause. It turns out it matters what kind of menopause you have in terms of your brain health and your risk. Absolutely, and those things yeah. are not considered. But that's the heart of precision medicine. If we show that, hey, hormone, this hormone therapy A is better for you if you've never been pregnant versus hormone therapy B is better. Like, that's just not looked at in the literature. And to be honest, we, we want, we want to look at that specific question in human databases. And we got permission to look at human databases. We have the human databases we published on them. Um, but that question of what type of hormone therapy is not written into the human databases. So people, hmm. again, this sort of bias of not including that information in these gigantic, amazing databases, but mm-hmm. it's just the information is not there. Okay, so that's probably also because you were talking about why it's so important for us to understand these female-specific mechanisms. And it comes all back to something that we've also talked in different podcast episodes. It's because females are just much more variable because of their hormones and the hormonal transition phases that they're going through. I mean, that's all the things that you've mentioned now that might pose a risk or a protective factor for women and brain health or brain disease comes down to pregnancy, to hormonal contraceptives, to menopause. And these are very female-specific events. And if we learn to understand what kind of mechanisms that there are and how they influence neuroplasticity, the immune system, whatever, um, that might give us um, a certain... Mm, how do you say like a certain yeah um, um, something like that to understand okay maybe this is then more helpful for this or that individual like it helps us to to improve our precision medicine if we include these mechanisms that stand behind that what you said is perfect except for one thing okay <laughs> no you tell me perfect. yeah the, the one thing that people take and they turn it twisted around is that females are more variable Um, so they're, they're not more variable. They're not any more variable than males are. It's just that what's contributing to that variability in females, we know are some of these reproductive events. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. now the other way that people have twisted that is to say, oh, your hormones and your hormones are, you know, uh, you know, it's very dismissive, right? Like mommy Mm -hmm. brain and momnesia and you're, you're so hormonal. Um, hormones matter in males too. Yeah. And in fact, they're much more variable. Like testosterone varies across mm-hmm. the day in human males by, by 100%, 50%, like I think it's 100%, 100%. It goes down um, or 50%. Anyway, whatever. It goes from 200 to 100, whatever that means, 
Um, and that's across every single day. So, you know, one of my standard jokes is, you know, given this monthly fluctuation in uh, human females versus a daily fluctuation in human males, like mm-hmm. who's more hormonal? So I think, I think, I think that, that fair that point. Sometimes mm-hmm. people, t- you know, <laughs> twist those words around yeah. and say, oh, females are more variable. That's why we don't want to study them. But the, but the point is mm-hmm. that males are just as variable. Yeah. It's just we know a lot more about them. <laughs> I mean, okay. You know, mm-hmm. I understand. You know, like, I have to correct myself there. It's not that females no, no, are it's more, not a, but, but it's, no, it's, it's a, a, but it's a good point to make. And also, I need to correct myself that because probably that's also what we've been. Yeah, it's a little bit how we also are raised taught things. and raised uh, um, about that. But of course, I mean more the female-specific huge hormonal transition yeah. phases that we right. were talking about. Um, um, pregnancy and they matter, and and, but they're not studied. Yeah, they they really matter. They matter for our mental health. Um, very much in the few yeah. studies that are out there we know they matter very much and they need study and they do not need to be dismissed mm. um, but that's also I mean talking about that um, and I offered you now this perfect um, how do you say like this perfect point to step on that and you also mentioned it already is that one of the reasons why we still over only have three percent female only studies is it because um researchers still think females are female animals female humans are so much more variable it's really hard for us to study that is that one of the reasons or is there something else that you can make um out of that that i mean you know i don't i i i wish i knew exactly the answer for that i think it's a few things uh, that are working i think it's old-fashioned sexism um, I think it's a, just a bias and I, I think people get scared of that word, but I heard a fantastic presentation where the person said, look, we all have biases, every single one of us. And so if you come from that angle, like there's no blame here, it's just, you know, what did they say? They said it was like a bias is like a armpit odor. Do you know what I mean? My armpit, mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. like, and sometimes we all have armpits. And sometimes they stink. Mm. And so if somebody tells you your armpit stinks, <laughs> you know, showing you that you have a bias, your your response should not be, oh, no, it doesn't stink. Your response should be like, oh, I'll, I'll clean it up. Thank you for telling me. I'll clean yeah. it up. And I went, because we all have armpits, right? And sometimes they stink. <laughs> we all have biases. So I, I think there's been a bias in the literature that it doesn't matter. So I think there's a dismissal that doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. Um, I think that... Uh, there is, um, I think that people find it, um, they think that they're more variable. So they're harder to study. I think there's also that. So it might be, there is no difference. They're harder to study. I think it's everything, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think we can pinpoint one thing. And I also know there's a lot of reluctance because even though the EU, even though Canada, even though the US now mandates incorporation of sex and or gender, depending on the, the, um, federal or, or um, body, because I know EU is not federal, but um, depending on the funding body, they mandate incorporation of sex and gender in research, but people say it's too expensive to do. Hmm. Mm. And I think, I think there's another point, which is that uh, I tried to make this on Twitter the other day too, that um, because our knowledge is so much based on the male physiology that we have this beautiful story that the males follow, right? Like aging is the certain way. It looks the certain way. Um, 
But when we add females to our research, and we do the same thing, like I'd say that half of my research is in females only, half is in males and females for various reasons. Um, we do the same thing. We'll see a nice, a nice progression of what, how we think the, the theory should be, how something should work in males. Females will often show the opposite or won't show that same pattern. Mm-hmm. And so I think what happens is for me, I love it. I think this is the most exciting thing ever. Look, there's a difference. But for other researchers that have been sort of forced, quote unquote, to add females, I think they they might look at that and say, this is too complicated. We know what it looks like in males because there's been so much more work done in that. Mm-hmm. Let's just continue on this. And it makes sense in males. It doesn't make sense in females. But it's it's only not making sense in females because we know so little about them. I see. Yeah. And that, that's also, I mean, for, for me listening to that, that if, if we actually see these sex differences in males and hum- and males and females, it would have been, it would have been super, super nice and so important for us to understand what's going on in females because we need that for, for female health as well. And also to see that there, are, that in this specific mechanism, there are differences so that even males and men can benefit from that. And also females and women can benefit from that. That would, yeah, that I guess for me, that's like a very um, maybe obvious thing to understand. But of course, as you also say, and I like that you don't blame here. It, it's not, of course, you if, if everything has been um, has been going like this for the whole time, of course, you can like, you see this and you say like, oh my God, there's a difference. It's getting super complicated. And now it's not only this is the right and the the the, the correct way or the, the way that we've been seeing that, but there are differences here. So of course... Yeah, it, it gets more complicated, right? I would say two things in answer to that. Yes, exactly. And no, I mean, yeah, I love to blame people and say sexism and blah, 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 women, let's burn our bras. Um, but that doesn't get us anywhere. <laughs> um, because I think that it is often people, you probably have heard the unconscious bias thing, right? Yeah. Um, it just means that people aren't really thinking about it. Um, lacanumab. So it was the, I think the last study, the last drug that was approved by the FDA to, um, slow the decline of Alzheimer's disease and a lot of controversy about this drug because it also causes severe side effects. Mm. So if you look at the data, uh, secondary analysis of the data, you see that it works in males. It works in men. It does not work in women. I mean, there's a little bit of an effect in women, but not as dramatic as it is in, in men. Mm-hmm. Also varies by genotype and ethnicity. But so what that tells us is lecanemab probably works in men. It doesn't work so well in women. So let's find the drug that works really well in, in women, right? That the mechanism behind Alzheimer's disease, there there might be a different pathways. You know, they end up at the same place, but the mechanistic exactly. pathway is slightly different. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that help that helps both, right? Because it's almost as much information to know this doesn't work in females as it is to know this works in males. Um, but then let's tailor our drugs to show that, hey, you know, this, again, part of precision medicine that is very rarely considered. Uh, and then the other fascinating thing I think is that during pregnancy, multiple sclerosis, um, which is um, a, a neurological disorder, affects the immune system. Um, people with multiple sclerosis that get pregnant actually show remission in their symptoms. They feel sometimes the best during pregnancy than they've ever felt outside of pregnancy. Mm. Wow. And mm. so how can that help men? 
that can help men by perhaps, maybe, if there's some kind of hormone or something else that happens during pregnancy, maybe, maybe we can give that to, to men with MS and that will help them. So I think there's also this idea, this reluctance maybe to study. First of all, people, I've heard this so many times that women's health is a, a, a niche topic. It's a small area. What? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I, um, I've been in many meetings where people have said this is niche. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, we're 50% of the population. It's not niche. And so we have to get out of that mindset as well. And out of the mindset that this is only going to help this population. It's not going to help the trans population. It's not going to help men. It is absolutely going to help all of those different populations. Because we're paying attention to sex and gender, that's going to help. If we don't, or if we ignore one or the other, it's not going to help. Yeah, that basically um, summarizes everything that we've been saying also now. Um, that basically excluding females based on that what I called greater variability is not valid, right? So it's definitely not sufficient to just um, study the males and say like that's the standard way. But we have to understand that even besides... Um, males and females having the same outcome, there might still be differences in their mechanisms that we might be able to target then both in the females or also then in the males and have a theoretical potential resulting out of that. That's very beautiful. But now I want to pose maybe a, di a difficult question here, um, a little bit challenging. What are the current limits of research in animal models for our knowledge in humans, but also in women? I mean, you can't I think you can do a lot with animal models. <laughs> um, I think I, I, on, I, I do honestly believe that the lack of translation, because people will talk about that, oh, you can't model everything, like schizophrenia, for example. Mm. Yeah, you can't model, you can't model disordered thinking necessarily in animals, but we can absolutely look at certain behaviors and um, translate that into human behavior. We absolutely can do that. And I'm happy that's a very long podcast though. Um, However, um, because we haven't been paying attention to who gets the disease and when in our animal models and paying attention to females and males and how all these different experiences went, I think that's what's driving, uh, driving this lack of translation. And I'll, I'll say something that uh, I know I've said this before and some researchers get really angry with me, but I, I think it's important to say out loud. And that is that a lot of the money funding for specifically for Alzheimer's disease has gone to uh, studying embryonic cells. So I don't know if, if you're talking about embryonic cells, we're talking about cells from, you know, a developing fetus, for example, or a very young animal. And it could be from humans, could be from animal models. Hmm. That is very different than studying cells from an old brain. They act really different. So it, it's great. You know, we're still learning some things. I'm not saying we should stop that kind of research, but studying the young brain for a, a disease in which people get it when they're older, that's not a good model in my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Who gets the disease and when, right? So if you're studying something, if you're studying, uh, you know, autism, which is developed normally young, young, you know, pre-puberty, but you're yeah. looking at an old animal or an old person, that's not necessarily the same thing, right? If you're talking okay. about development mm. of So, um, so there's that. Um, and, and obviously we can't recapitulate a human disease in an animal model, right? We can't, we can't ask an animal if they're suicidal. 
<laughs> right? That just doesn't, you can ask them, but they're not going to answer you. Let's just say, yeah. but we can absolutely look at what I've already called an end of phenotype. So we can look at, um, we can, so for example, uh, you can look at, uh, um, uh, agitation. You can look at sleep. You can look at eating habits. You can look at, um, cognition and memory. Um, for example, the new stuff that we've been doing in the lab and we published a couple of papers on this is something called negative kind of bias, right? So in people with depression, they'll take an amb- ambiguous, um, statement like that's an interesting shirt you have on mm. and say, think it's negative. Like the person doesn't like it, even mm-hmm. though they just said, oh, it's an interesting shirt. Um, and so you can model that in animals. You can absolutely look at something like that. So, you know, it's not perfect, but, but actually when you look at disorders in humans, they're also not quote unquote perfect. Not everyone ticks off all of those 10 different symptoms you can have in depression or 10 different symptoms mm-hmm. you can have in schizophrenia. So I think we don't look enough, uh, carefully enough in preclinical models, but also clinical models as well. Like they're very heterogeneous disorders. You know, we, we want to put everybody in a box, mm. but it's all, that's also not perfect. So I, I used to do a course called Lost in Translation. Um, <laughs> it's like, is it, do we blame animal models or do we blame our knowledge of the human disorder? Or is it a bit of both? I see. So it's just maybe mm, we need to, to see research in animal models just as an additional way of researching and, and getting to the points that we might not be able to research as good as in humans while of course acknowledging the limits somehow like the very subjective reports but we can do so much more and um, so much important um, mechanisms and pathways that we can study with um, with animal models yeah and humans right i mean we still have a lot of work to do yes yes <laughs> of course <laughs> And on the human side. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I would say that um, that brings us almost to my last question. But before that, um, I would like to briefly summarize what we've talked about now. Um, and that is that preclinical work in animal models helps us uh, research and understand human and specifically also women's mental health. And that is because there are certain female-specific mechanisms where research in animals just helps us understand how the sex hormones um, that yeah, or just in general, like sex hormones, but also hormonal transition phases influence, for example, neuroplasticity and contribute to risk or resilience factors in these periods. And specifically, this research in females is important because just as there are no sex difference that we observe then on the behavioral, the symptom level, if we talk about disease, it does not mean that there are no sex differences on these um biological or just mechanisms that are behind these disease and yeah women's health is more than just comparing to men's health right so to achieve basically um, improvements for both men and women we need also to look at the females yeah i think that last point we i probably didn't touch upon as much as i could have and i know we're nearing the end but i think there's been i think it's i welcome the um acknowledgement that we need to use sex and gender and our research from all these uh, funding mm-hmm. agencies. However, it shouldn't always be that we need to compare to males, right? We, we If we're always have that male standard, we're going to, it shouldn't be a standard, right? It's just 
one part. And we need to understand how female-specific experiences can drive disease risk and resilience. You saw, I think you, I think you said it beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, the idea that, um, sex and gender research is going to, is, is the complete answer to understanding women's health is, is not correct. To me, it's one step. Mm-hmm. The other step is understanding how these female-specific experiences can drive brain health. Yeah. Definitely. Very, very beautifully said as well. Yeah. And that brings me now to my last question. And that is um, that I've asked every one of my guests so far. And that is what is the next big question or the next big step in research regarding women's mental health? And how and this part is now very new for you as my um, interview guest, how could animal models help us to read and answer that question? Um, Yes, That is a very good question. I should have read that question so that I know how to answer that question. <laughs> But I think to me, I think that, um, what's the next great step? And I think it's this opening the door to do more to acceptance of this kind of research in animals, in humans to not dismiss female specific experiences. So it's, I'm not giving you like, Oh, because I think if I say, organoids, which is for your audience, like, oh, these um, brains that we can develop from skin cells, and you can develop like a mini brain. You know, maybe that's going to be helpful. I think it's interesting. I don't know that it's going to give us complete answers to, to any of these questions mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Um, I, I think we need to, we need, um, we need people, we need uh, publishers, We need funders, we need researchers and clinicians to understand that this is a re- it's not a niche area, that this is really important. It's not just going to drive health benefits for mm. one part of the population. It's going to drive health benefits for everyone. And I, I really mean that sincerely. Mm. So I'd say that our, I guess our next frontier is getting acceptance, which is really sad that this is a frontier, but gaining acceptance that this is a really important field of research. Yeah, definitely nothing to add from my side. I couldn't have said it more more beautifully, I would say. Perfect. Lisa, I hope we can continue this conversation at some point in the future again for part two. Maybe some things changed. Maybe we have a little bit more um, updates there because there's definitely so much more that I would love to talk to you about. Thank you so much for taking your time. It was absolutely a great honor and pleasure to have you in this podcast. Same. And <laughs> for our listeners now, if you have any feedback, questions, suggestions for specific topics, please let us know and contact us um, via mail, Twitter. You can find the information in the show notes of this episode and our podcast. And if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, feel free to share it with family, friends, colleagues. And until then, hear, the, hear you the next time on Let's Talk About Women.